Hello everyone, Callie Hannah here with a quick disclaimer from the future, 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 future. <laughs> the episode you are about to hear was recorded prior to my public coming out as a transgender woman. As such, you will hear myself and others refer to me by my dead name and he, him pronouns, and that is not how I want to be referred to now. I, well, I go by Callie and I use she, her pronouns. Uh, the rest of the episode has been left as is for the purposes of historical preservation, but uh, just know that it is not accurate to my current uh, gender identity. Thank you, and enjoy the show. The hipster and the nerd. Yes, hipster and the nerd. The nerd. One went to the genius. The other is quite absurd. Exactly which is which. Off the fence is which. Yes, good sir. The hipster and the nerd. 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 Hipster and the nerd. Created by Steven Spielberg? No. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hipster and the Nerd, the podcast where we discuss movies, TV shows, comic books, video games, and all manner of geek and pop culture to see what we can make of it. Specifically, we are in a new episode of our sub-series, Rocket Ship Roulette, where we talk about random movies picked from a, a number generator, and random space opera bullshit happens. Yes. So, Brian, how are you so, doing today? And can you explain this random space opera bullshit? <laughs> so basically, after the war between the proto-humans and the Flepian demons that resulted in us exiling them all back to their own dimension, the ghost of Starcock 2, whom I murdered, came and started haunting my spaceship Persephone, which I love. I love my spaceship Persephone. It's a very, She's a very good girl, um, and I'm sure nothing bad will happen to her. Uh, and... Basically, the Ghost of Starcock 2 is now the arbiter of this show. He's the one that forces us to continue to watch uh, these random movies all the time. And, oh, oh my god, Chris, oh my god, that's an asteroid! Holy shit! Holy shit, we gotta oh get through the- Oh my god! Ah! Oh my god, we're going through a- we're going through a dimensional shift! What? Oh my god! Okay, okay, uh, the console's dead. What the fuck? What are we going to do, Starcock 2? Uh, I don't know. Wait, which dimension are we in? I don't know. I thought you could tell me that. Uh, let me see. Oh, yeah, this one? Mm. No, this one's uh, dimension 2B3. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not very cool, but, you know. Oh, look, there's a manta. What the fuck is a manta? You don't know what a manta is? Okay, so a manta were like these creatures that evolved in the atmosphere of a gas giant that then eventually evolved to go into space by hibernating for thousands of years, and they eat asteroids. And different species that are spacefaring have learned that if they create these carriages on their backs, they can basically go with the mantis for thousands of years. But wouldn't they die of old age? No, they wouldn't, because... They can inject the special juice that hibernates the mantas into their veins, and that keeps them in hibernation also. And they also form telepathic connections with their riders. 
These are, it's totally not an idea for a novel that someone had called The Manta Riders of the Plamore. <laughs> well, that's very informative. Thank you, Ghost of Star Cop, But what are we going to do? The Persephone's dead. We can't go anywhere. We need to get to your home planet, Jubo, to connect your soul back to your mortal body. Well, I guess we could do one thing. We could get into that pod, you know, our escape pod, and try and get into one of these mantas. That, that is an idea, but then we'd be leaving back Persephone, whom I love very much. Well, sucks to suck, I guess. <laughs> All right, we're getting into the space, the escape pod, Chris. Oh, man, we're All getting right. into the escape pod. All right, here we go. All right, well, this is a good time as any to talk about the two movies we were ta- going to talk about today. Oh, yeah. Uh, which are Mad Max and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 50s version. So, Chris, what movie do you want? To talk about first. I say we should discuss Mad Max first. I, I was getting into my Australian accent there because it's all Australians and it was filmed in Australia, so it's appropriate. <laughs> Crikey! So, Mad Max is the brainchild of one Babe Pig in the City director, George, George Miller. Ma- oh, don't forget his magnum opus, Happy Feet 2. Yes. <laughs> and I love my favorite George Miller fact is that someone once asked if he was going to make a Happy, Happy Feet, Feet 3, and he, and he said, said, If you were to put a gun to my head, uh, it, no, he, his exact quote was, If you were to put a gun to my head and say, Come up with a story for Happy, Three, Happy Feet 3, I would say, Shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, at this point, George Miller, this is his first movie. Who he was before this, he was actually a doctor. Oh. And he worked in, in emergency services. And because of this, he saw a lot of Australian car accidents. And he incorporated a lot of these experiences into his first film, Mad Max, after he did some work in the independent circuit. Now, the casting of Mel Gibson is also very interesting because this is one of his first breakout roles. Before this, Mel Gibson was basically a nobody that was in like one student film and he was paid $15,000 to star in this movie, which is not a lot. <laughs> um, this movie was shot very guerrilla style, which means that they would go to Australian roads and shut them off illegally to do <laughs> these car crashes that were not allowed, technically. <laughs> Although later the police got interested and started helping them out a bit more. <laughs> um, so, that is basically the story of... Mad Max. Oh, I forgot to mention also the screenplay written by Byron Kennedy. Byron Kennedy is a journalist with no previous film writing experience. He was chosen by George Miller, who also had no film writing experience, specifically (laughs) because he thought that a journalist would be the best person to help build a story. Uh, Because, you know, journalists are good writers and stuff like that. And Byron Kennedy, working with George Miller, came up with a lot of the political themes that would go on to define the Mad Max series, such as peak oil, uh, human dependency on fossil fuels, and our love of cars. Yes! Yeah! So, now that all that is out of the way, in the let's get into the plot. Yeah. The plot. So, in the near-future dystopia, Australia... Berserk motorbike gang named Crawford Knight Rider Montezano kills a rookie officer of the main force patrol MFP. And already I love some of the dialogue in this movie. Like, I'm a suicide machine. There's this amazing. We Mad got a Max cop killer. <laughs> yes. Great dialogue. I love it so much. So, Australia's highway patrol unit 
is the MFP. And it's interesting because in this dystopian future, the cops are kind of like a gang with only the very barest connection to any sort of legal system. Just like in real life. <laughs> yeah. And this guy's escaping with his girlfriend in a pursuit special. And Knight Rider manages to elude the other MFP officers before the organization's top pursuit man, Max Rokotansky, disrupts him, uh, disrupts his concentration during a high-speed chase. And there's a lot of cool scenes that happen here. For instance, there's the scene where the child goes out to the street and this causes like a giant like car crash. It's amazing. It's like, yeah, like shit, within the no first die? 30 minutes, there's like four car wrecks. Like... <laughs> Well, that's because this movie isn't really... Well, the whole Mad Max franchise is kind of in the genre of car exploitation, which was a really short-lived moment in the 1970s exploitation boom with movies like Death Race 2000 and stuff like that, where basically it's an exploitation film about cool cars, and that's the major point, is the cars. And uh, there's another one called... Oh, God, it's called Firebird 2015 AD in a future where all cars are outlawed, except for the cars that chase the other cars. So when are we going to get a... So 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 when is the is, is, is Pixar's Cars franchise getting in on this action? That's the real well, question. Well, you could argue Cars is children's version of car exploitation. <laughs> I would argue. <laughs> and I, I love this scene with the Knight Rider. And the Knight Rider... He, once he realizes that he's going to die, he goes from being, like, super happy to being like, it's all over, it's over, and he starts, like, breaking down in tears, and it's it's kind of disturbing. I enjoy it. So, but then what happens is he dies in this fiery crash, and we get this close-up shot of his eyeballs bugging out, which is an ongoing thing in Mad Max 1, 2, and Fury Road. Uh, and, yeah, Not in Beyond so, Thunderdome? Yes. Uh, it's not, if I remember correctly, not in Beyond Thunderdome, starring Tina Turner. Um, so yeah, and Mad Max himself is kind of like a false protagonist in a way. Well, that's kind of a theme with, I, I, the only, okay, I I will say up front, I've only seen two Mad Max movies. This one, and before that, Fury Road. And Max is a much bigger character in Road Warrior and Beyond. Yeah, Thunder because I, I notice a commonality between the two of the is that Max himself isn't really all that important to the overall plot, which I would right. say in this one is actually kind of a benefit because it means I have to see less because it means I, I don't have to see as much of Mel Gibson. Um. <laughs> I mean, at this point, Mel Gibson... Yeah, we know we know now who Mel Gibson was. A horrible, we, we, we horrible know now person. What what he's become as a person, you know, controversial as he is for good reason because he's a yes. bad person. You could argue, yes. Um, but at this point in Mel Gibson's career, he was again basically a nobody. I mean, uh, yeah, and... I know we didn't know at the time. You know, he was yeah. an anti-Semitic creep. But, but also, this was also eight years before he made his Hollywood breakout in Lethal Weapon. And this is also before he reached his, probably his peak of popularity in the 2000s with his weird brand of patriotic Christian films like The Patriot, Braveheart, and, uh, and uh, oh God, <laughs> The Passion of the Christ. Oh God, yeah. 
I yeah. think. But the, before all of that, he was just Max Rocketansky. Yeah, the, yeah, and you know? yeah. Obviously, this is before all of that. All of that happened, and before we knew that he was an anti-Semitic creep. But he knowing, does a pretty good job in this movie, I would say. Also. Like he's not a bad actor, but that doesn't change the fact that my knowledge of him being an anti-Semitic creep makes his presence uncomfortable. Well, yeah. I got some more Mel Gibson lore, if you want to hear about it. Oh, um, dear God. <laughs> so, Mel Gibson uh, was basically actually born in America. Oh. And then his family moved to Australia to avoid the Vietnam draft, to keep Mel Gibson from getting drafted into the Vietnam War. Oh, uh, um, okay. Isn't that interesting? Fun facts. <laughs> so they're draft dodgers, apparently? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um... So, what I was saying before about him being kind of... He's kind of a dual protagonist with Steve Bisley's character, Jim Goose Reigns. Oh, uh, yeah, that guy. kind of like an... He's another member of the main Force Patrol's motorcycle unit. And Steve Bisley originally auditioned for the role of Max Rokitansky. But then Mel Gibson really ex- show, really showed he was... He blew everybody out of the water when he, when he, uh, when he auditioned, apparently. So... At the MFP gang, Max is shown a supercharged V8 Power Black Pursuit Special. It has hot rod flames and everything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a conversation between Max's superior, Fifi McAfee, and Police Commissioner Labatooch reveals that the Pursuit Special was authorized as a bribe to keep Max on the force. Because basically, no one wants to be a cop anymore. I want to return. Government's collapsing Mac- for reasons. Because McAfee's all like, I want to return heroes to the people. It's like, but you're a cop, though. <laughs> well, I mean, in in the Mad Max universe, being a cop is like only slightly morally support superior than being the the gangsters. Just like in yeah. real life. Exactly. <laughs> and what I find interesting about the Mad Max franchise is that it has a very loose continuity in the sense that yeah. the most important things that happen, such as nuclear war, will usually happen off screen. <laughs> Um, and this like is interesting because you, you start to wonder why is the government collapsing and in Fury Road and in future films we find out that there were oil wars and that basically the Australian government in my headcanon collapsed because of peak oil which is the theory that eventually humanity will get to a point where there's not enough oil left and everything goes to shit. <laughs> Well, there's an argument yeah. to be made. I've I've heard the argument made that every Mad Max movie is in its own universe, which is that is you could argue that. But the problem with that is is that there's certain things that are set up and referenced in all. Yeah, of the that's films. that is also true. And I've heard like, I've heard some theories. I don't know if you and this is more, you know, to do with later films than this right. one. But I've heard theories that like. The Max, like the Tom Hardy Max from Fury Road, is like the kid from Beyond from Road from, from Beyond Thunderdome or, or no, from, Road or, from Road Warrior. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So the kid from Road Warrior, um, he's the kid with the boomerang that doesn't speak because he's mute. Uh, it, 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 there are several things that do kind of line up, like the fact that Mel Gibson's character in that movie, Mad Max, gives him a music box, and in Fury Road he's seen using a music box. George Miller talking about the theory said, it's a great theory, but it's not what I had in mind when I was writing the film. So 
that sounds like to me that Fury Road Max is Max after Beyond Thunder. Yeah, because I think Max even says something about like he he went beyond or Thunderdome or what or no 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 it was like he became a road warrior. He he, he became he, a road warrior yeah, stuff like that. So warrior. the stuff yeah. that does connect connect continuity wise, I like to point this out. Max gets shot at the end of this movie in the leg. And in Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome, he has a leg brace. Um, besides that, there's also other things, like the fact that his wife getting murdered is obliquely referenced in Mad Max 2 and Road Warrior and kind of Fury Road in some of the flashbacks. So I'm of the opinion that all of these movies are in the same universe, but that the universe has lots of crazy shit that happens in between the movies. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, meanwhile, Knight Rider's motorbike gang, led by Toe Cutter, the actor who plays Immortem Joe in Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and Bubba Zanetti run roughshod all over town, vandalizing property, stealing few, and terrorizing the population. And they have a lot of great Australian weird dialogue. It kind of reminds me of, like, you know how the Droogs talk in A Clockwork Orange? It reminds me of that, only more Australian, and I like it a lot. What a turkey! Exactly. It's it's uh, it's appropriate that uh, this should be coming out on or around Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes. Uh, they trap a young couple in a car before destroying it and raping the couple. Uh, this also gets into the weird thing, which is in Mad Max and Road Warrior, there are highly queer-coded villains, which is interesting. Like, in this one, there is a guy that has a lot of makeup, um, and in Mad Max 2, there's a guy with assless chaps oh my who's God. really mad at Max because his boyfriend got murdered. Oh. I like to interpret that as just villains that happen to be gay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, that happens, and then fellow officer Jim Goose arrests Toe Cutter's young protege Johnny the Boy at the scene. When neither ra the rape victims nor any of the townspeople show up for Johnny's trial, the federal courts close the case, and the lawyers kind of like, "We can't, we can't try this case. Nobody showed up," uh, which again shows how the world is going to shit. And with Johnny's attorney releasing him into Bubba's custody over Goose's furious objections, and Goose has to be like brought back by Mad Max. He's like, "No, Goose, you can't do this. We're of the law. We're 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 lawmen. We're the heroes. <laughs> and we have bronze stars." Uh, while Goose visits a nightclub in the city, Johnny sabotages his police motorbike, and the next day, after the motorbike locks up uh, at high speeds, a dazed but surprisingly uninjured Goose borrows an oot. And an oot is kind of like a van. It's an Australian van. <laughs> it's an Australian van. <laughs> yeah. We're going in an oot, Morty. We're going in. <laughs> uh, to haul his bike back to the MFP. However, Johnny ambushes Goose by throwing a brake drum through his windshield, causing him to crash. At Toe Cutter's insistence, Johnny reluctantly throws a match into the wreck of the Ute, igniting the petroleum and burning Goose alive. Fun! Uh, I love there's one scene here where Mad Max, um, Max is talking with his police chief. Right, yeah. His, and he's like, you know, if I'm going to stay one more day out there, I'm going to become just like them. And it's like, it really shows the darkness of this world. And in a way, it's interesting because this movie is kind of the darkest Mad Max movie in the sense that it treats its world less as an action 
as an action world that just it's like in in road warrior through mad max Fury road the fact that the world is post-apocalyptic feels kind of like a setting like the dystopia like and we'll sort of and i i can talk about this a bit more later but like the dystopia right. is less obvious but it's also less fantastical and therefore it's more insidious and realistic yeah it's more raw and, and in that way, I think this movie is a lot darker and more disturbing than the other Mad Max movies. In some ways, yes. Yeah. Like, I don't think any of the other Mad Max movies would have some of the scenes that are in this movie. Um, like, especially with the burn guy. It's crazy. Uh, so, after seeing Goose's charred body in a hospital intensive care unit, Max is like, That's not Goose! That's not Goose! That's not Goose, mate! Runs away. <laughs> And uh, he becomes disillusioned with the MFP, where he then has the conversation yeah. we talked about. Yeah, so and, and informs, he, he quits the force. Yeah, he, he tells Fifi, his commanding officer, he's going to re- resign to maintain what Sandy has left. And Fifi convinces Max to take a vacation first before he submits his final letter of resignation. And this is kind of interesting, because I saw Fury Road first, and then I saw Road Warrior, and then I saw this movie. And in a way, it's very bizarre because this feels like a prequel. Yeah. Even though really it was made like, first. Yeah. Like, yeah, I get what it you're really saying. feels like a prequel. Yeah. It feels like it was something that would be made afterwards to explain in order to, or maybe, maybe that's just our, the, the way our media is so, you know, we live in a very franchise heavy media landscape. So maybe right. Well, my point being is that it's very slow and it's all leading up to an ending that basically uh, leads up to the character he becomes in Road Warrior. That is you know. true. I, I don't know if they were planning to do Road Warrior at the time. No, they were not. Okay. <laughs> Which makes it all the stranger. Yeah, it's it's odd. I think the romance in this movie is very sweet between Max and his girlfriend. I enjoy it a lot, even though we all know what's going to happen to Max's girlfriend. Yes. Like, I, you didn't even know what was going to happen. I'm sure you knew what was going to happen to Max's girlfriend. Well, I mean, yeah. Duh. <laughs> Duh. It's an exploitation movie. Yeah. So then what happens is Max takes his wife, Jesse and their infant son referred to only as Sprog, which that's, that's an interesting name for a child. Sprog. Australian slang for a child on vacation in a panel van. And when they stop to fix the spare tire, Jesse takes Sprog to buy ice cream and then toe cutter comes up. And then they ruin the purity of ice cream. Yes, because toe cutter comes up and eats her ice cream. <laughs> Fuck you toe cutter. And they attempt to sexually assault Jesse. But Jesse kicks Toe Cutter in the crotch and escapes in the van. Good. And this is all because they want vengeance on Knight Rider. Because they all apparently really fucking love Knight Rider. You know? Knight Rider was just a really cool guy. So then what happens is they flee to a remote farm owned by an elder- elderly friend named May Swayze. And Toe Cutter's gang follows them there and ambushes Jesse in the woods. And with May's help, Jesse and the Sprog escape... I like how I just said the Sprog. Uh, but when they try to drive away, the van inadvertently overheats. So Jesse and the Sprog attempt to escape on foot, but are run over by the gang. And May is also killed during this. And Max arrives. And it's Man, like, I oh my god. Max's wife and child are fucking, fucking dead. dead. They're fucking Who could have seen like... that coming? <laughs> They're fucking dead. Like... <laughs> it's almost like the movie's called Mad Max. And there has to be a reason for him to go mad. <laughs> So Sprague is instantly killed while a badly injured Jesse lies comatose in a hospital ICU. And I love this shot. This, there's this beautiful shot 
where basically they're the doctors are talking about how she's gonna die and how they need to lie to max because max is gonna go crazy and they they cut back and there's like this tortured max with his face and he looks like a ghost just hearing <laughs> all of this and it's it's incredible acting on the part of mel gibson because uh, surprisingly mel gibson can play crazy people very well i wonder why that is it's almost like he's a crazy person in real life with terrible opinions about real people <laughs> maybe yeah so Max now, set on vengeance, goes out to kill Toe Cutter and his gang. Hobble, driven Max! In, Hobble! Driven into rage by the loss of his family, Max dons his police uniform, which, by the way, has leather pants in the Australian desert. Jesus, how is he not sweating those pants out of existence? So, a production detail, only one of the leather pants used was real leather. <laughs> <laughs> the rest were like spandex i think ah, or some other material i so see max dons his uniform which hilariously has leather pants uh and he goes in his black pursuit special from the mfp garage to pursue and eliminate the gang that will be several... from hot wheels <laughs> he goes to one of the guys and basically drops a car on him to get him to talk which i think is very funny uh, he kills several gang members by ramming them off a bridge at high speed, kills Bubba when ambushed by the surviving three gang members, and there's amazing action scenes. Like, the car crashes are incredible in this. Yeah. Uh, don't you agree? The, yes, I would I would definitely agree. There are two things this movie loves. Car crashes and long extended shots of highways. It really yes. likes long highways. <laughs> to the point where at the end of the movie, it's like Max has become one with the long highway. He has achieved yes. zen. <laughs> And much like Road Warrior, there is an actual onset accident that was included in the film. Oh, Jesus. Um, you'll notice that in one of the scenes where the biker goes down, he goes in front of the bike and the, the bike's wheel hits his head. Oh, my God. Uh, as he's going down. That Yeah, that was real. And that was obviously not planned. Oh, shit. Um, if we talk about Road Warrior, I'll get into the one in that, which was much worse, involving someone's back being broken. Oh, dear was God. it their leg? I think it was their leg. But anyway, um, look, George Miller does not fuck around, okay? He made Babe Pig in the City. <laughs> you don't fuck with the guy who made Babe Pig in the City. Exactly. So then what he does is he kills Bubba when ambushed by the three surviving members and forces Toe Cutter into the path of a speeding semi-truck. Finally, Max locates Johnny at a car wreck and stealing the boots of its dead driver. And uh, I love, I love Johnny's pleas. He's like, "Look, I'm not, I'm not a bad guy. I'm sick. I'm, I'm a psychopath. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a psychopath. You're gonna put this snake on your cock, Morty." <laughs> and this kind of reminds me of, honestly, this movie reminds me less of Road Warrior than it does Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry. I was reminded of Logan at points. Yeah, um, I mean, Logan's probably obviously influenced by this, I think. Yeah, and but the, the whole the whole cop on the edge goes out and tortures people in revenge thing, it felt very dirty hairy to me. Um, especially this scene, where Max handcuffs Johnny's ankle to the wrecked vehicle and then sets a crude time delay fuse and gives him, just like a, <laughs> just like Jigsaw, he gives him a hand, a, a handsaw and it's like, all right. You got about 10 minutes before this explodes. 10 minutes would cut through this chain. 
five minutes would probably cut through your ankle. Good luck. <laughs> ah, then... so Mel Gibson is a sadistic bastard. What a shock. <laughs> uh, and also, this probably inspired the scene in Saw. Most likely. Yeah, so they use a slow petroleum leak in Johnny's lighter before throwing him a hacksaw. And the vehicle explodes as Max drives away and it shows his face. And you're like, oh, now he's the road warrior. Uh, so yeah, Mad Max. Chris, what do you think of Mad Max? I mean, it's, it's pretty all right. It's like a 7 out of 10. <laughs> I, I, mean, like, I agree. I, 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 mean, I like it. It's, it's good. But mm -hmm. like, you know, do you know, obviously the action scenes are very impressive. You know, the car wrecks. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's like seven of them, and they're all yeah. really good. Um, there's some good emotional beats, and you know, it obviously deserves a lot of credit for you know kickstarting this whole series. You know that became this huge influential thing. Um, yeah. But like, there's weird. I I feel like it's paced weirdly. Like I even agree. though it's like short, it feels like things go on way longer than they should. I agree. Um, I think a lot of that comes in the middle of the film. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I would say so as well. Um, and oh, what was what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, it's weird how. And I know we talked about you know the the thing with the dystopia is that um, you know it is it is more raw in some ways, um, and you know it's there, but it's weird how much, especially compared to the other films, it's not a thing. It just sort of feels like a very shitty town in Australia rather than an actual dystopia, which is... I mean, if you pay attention to some of the things, like the fact that the jury is starting to, like, dissolve and the police system is, like, basically on the verge of collapse... I'm not saying the dystopia <laughs> isn't present and that there aren't details that if you pay attention to, like, that, that does, that, you know, that does make that clear. But, you mm -hmm. know, in terms of a general presentation... You know, it doesn't feel as much like the, a dystopia as I think maybe the, maybe they were intending or that. Well, what honestly, would be. I feel like the other films feel more post-apocalyptic. While this movie feels more dystopic in the sense that it shows you a shitty world where nothing is working, it's like pre-post-apocalyptic. It's dystopia. So this is dystopia more of society on the brink of collapse as opposed to right. the later films, which are. Society has, has collapsed. Society has collapsed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, I point out that you know the the un the inescapable, uncomfortable presence of Mel Gibson. Regardless I of we didn't like know Mel what the, I still like Mel Gibson movies. I it's hard for like, like signs. I, mean, I like signs, <laughs> and I like um, I like Ransom. Ransom's a good movie. Lethal Weapon, of course. I mean, it's I hard. I love for... all the Mad Max movies. Like, course, I, I like know. this movie, but it's hard for me to like. It is hard for me to like anything with Mel Gibson in it because I hate him. You <laughs> still liked it, though. You I did thought, still like it. Was it. A good movie. I did still like it. I thought it was a good movie. It's just you know, it's, you know, it was it was fine. <laughs> yeah. So you basically nailed most of my points on the head. I feel like the pacing was a bit slow. Um, overall, I feel like the film, uh, it kind of feels like it's all working towards the ending and w how it gets there isn't as important. Um, besides that, uh, I really enjoy the car crashes, of course. I enjoy Mel Gibson's acting. I enjoy, uh, all the different wacky, zany characters in the movie. But besides that, I feel like, uh, the movie overall 
is a really good test run for what would become a better franchise. And I do think this is the worst Mad Max movie, even if I do think it is still a pretty great movie. Yeah, it feels in in some ways it feels like a student film. Almost. Well, yeah, it was George Miller's yeah, first film. And I don't mean that as more like, I don't mean that as like some sort of petty insult. I mean that more as like an observation. Like it yeah. feels like a movie you would make to learn the craft of filmmaking as opposed to a more dedicated artistic effort. Well, yeah, it was George yeah. Miller yeah, really and obviously, his teeth you know, on all these ideas for the know, very first time. You know? Yeah, and obviously, you know, some of that is grounded in reality because it was George Miller's first film. Like, he was still figuring out how this whole movie thing worked. (laughs) All right. So you ready to talk about Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Yes. Let us talk about the original 1956 black and white version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. So Invasion of the Body Snatchers. uh, What did you say? Oh, I just said Ooga Booga Booga. Uh, ooga booga booga, right. Ooga, so Invasion of the Body Snatchers is one of my favorite franchises, mostly because when I was getting into science fiction and horror, I watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 50s version, and it was one of the first old horror movies that I was like, wait, this is actually scary? <laughs> and I never felt that way about a lot of old horror films, you know? But the 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 potent paranoia of the idea that people close to you have been replaced yeah it's a genuinely scary concept and we previously talked about the 70s version on this uh podcast what's, segment yeah what's spoiler alert that one's the better movie but this is still pretty good this, this is pretty um, good. i i yeah. feel i like them both about the same i i uh, would say i like the 70s version a, a version to uh fairly significant amount better i still think this one is good it is a very good movie but i think without question the 70s version is a better movie well i feel like that is kind of the mainstream opinion is that the 70s version is the best than the 50s version and then we don't talk about the others (laughs) Um, because nobody cares (laughs) but in my opinion i think the 50s version is on par with the 70s version and Mm. we'll get into why all right let's get into the plot so this movie, first off, let's get into the director. It was directed by Don Siegel and was written by Daniel Mainwaring, based off the Body Snatchers novel by Jack Finney. And Ooh. the movie starts with a psychiatrist, Dr. Hill, who is called to an emergency room at a California hospital where a screaming man is being held in custody. Dr. Hill agrees to listen to his story, and the man identifies himself as a doctor and recounts in flashbacks the events of the movie leading up to his hospitalization. Now... We now meet the incredibly suave doctor, Dr. Miles Burnell, in the yeah. small town of Santa Mira, California. Uh, so Dr. Miles Bunnell is super suave in the sense that he is an overlapping noir-style detective narration constantly throughout the movie. And he has the best hair, and everyone likes him, and he really... And, uh, and no one... And he, <laughs> and he weirdly has a relationship with one of his nurses, slash one of his patients... Well, it's different fine. time. It's, it's the fifties. Yeah. Different time. And again, different time. The doctor makes house calls, which is yeah. not something that happens anymore. So he is played by Kevin McCarthy, and he sees a number of patients apparently suffering from a capgrass delusion, the belief that their relatives have somehow been yeah, replaced with identical like the little looking boy. imposters. Yeah, because there's like the little boy who's like, "That's not my mom." Yep. 
And I don't want to go to school. There's the, and there's the uh, woman who's like, that's not my Uncle Ira. <laughs> that's not Uncle Ira at all. I don't like this. So I want to say this movie is shot way better than most 50s B-movies I've seen. Yes. It's a very good-looking film. Like, it, it, it's obvious that the director, Don Siegel, spent a lot of time thinking about the staging, and also there's a lot of high-contrast images that are very stark and interesting to look at. It uses so, first the off, black and white uh, very well, I will say. It's very well shot. Yes. So, then what happens is, returning from a trip, Miles meets his former girlfriend, Becky Driscoll, played by Dana Winter, who has recently come back to town after a divorce. Now, Becky's cousin, Wilma, Wilma, expresses the same Open fear this door. <laughs> about her uncle, Ira, with whom she lives. And psychiatrist Dr. Dan Kaufman, played by Larry Gates, assures Bunnell that these cases are merely an epidemic of yeah, mass hysteria. Yeah, he thinks it's just mass hysteria. And of course, I'd also like to point out that all of the men in this film imbibe alcohol at a level that is so not healthy. Like, oh, constantly, yeah. whenever they show up anywhere, they're just like, you want a drink? How about a drink? Dry. Very dry. Very dry. <laughs> it's like, how have these, uh, like, I, I, like, I'd be curious to see what these people's blood work looks like. Because I have to feel like at, at a certain point, it's just whiskey bottles floating in the bloodstream. <laughs> yeah, so that evening, Miles and Becky are urgently called to the hospital of Benell's friend Jack Belichick after they attempt to have a dance in a little nightclub thing. And I like the scene where he's like, the bartender, he's like, give me, give me two margaritas. And then, and then he gets a call and he's like, oh, I guess our night's over. Hold the drinks. And I wonder if that guy's still holding the drinks. Yeah, I wonder if he's still at the bar somewhere after all the pod people have taken over. It's just like. What do I do? Well, why are they coming back? What do I do with these two margaritas? I wonder if it, I wonder, does he straight up not know that the pod people took over the town? Maybe he's the one guy who hasn't been replaced and he's just in the bar and completely Hopefully. oblivious. This so is my head to Benel's, Yeah, they go to Benel's friend, Jack Belichick, no relation to Patriots head coach Bill Belichick, played by King Donovan, who has found what appears to be a dead body in his home. But it turns out it is not a dead body. It is, right. in fact, a clone. A pod person. A pod clone of Jack. And they're all like, yo, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, so inexplicably, the body has no discernible facial features or fingerprints. But to their horror, within a short period of time, it begins to take on the exact physical features of Belichick. Later, another body is found in Becky's basement that is her exact duplicate. And when Bunnell calls yeah. Dr. Kaufman to the scenes, the bodies have mysteriously disappeared. We have and a Kaufman mystery. Tells Bunnell, at one point, like, I forget which, which of the characters says it, but at one point, one of the characters legit says, uh, we have a mystery on our hands. And, <laughs> yes. And, and, my, and my question is, where is the talking dog? <laughs> <laughs> and then another time, I think the doctor says, you're talking like a writer. So that's fun. Yeah. Um, I also like to point out that, like, right before they find the Becky clone, uh, uh, Burnell's narration is like, you know, I had to get to her as quickly as possible. And then he proceeds to drive his car at normal speed to get to the house. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and I also like to point out that before, like, 40 minutes into this movie, which is half the film, we yeah. don't know if the people are going crazy or not. Because... Which is interesting. 
after yeah. the mystery the bodies are mysteriously not there anymore a psychiatrist comes to them and is like you're probably just imagined it i don't doubt that you saw it or that you thought you saw it but those things can't have existed <laughs> Yeah. So then the characters start to be like, well, maybe we were going crazy because they eventually hear that the body was found in a barn, the body of Jack, and they say he had burned off fingertips, which, again, is a rational explanation as to how this could have happened. I mean, granted, this is still a movie called Invasion of the Body Snatchers, so you'd probably assume that there'd be some body snatchers invading. Right. But at the same time, it is kind of... It definitely is, you know, an intriguing position to take of, you know, you don't necessarily know if this is real. Like, right, and that gets into your head. Like, that primes you for the terror later on in the film. Yes. You know, because the following night, Vanel, Becky, Jack, and Jack's wife, Teddy, played by Carolyn Jones, again find duplicates of themselves at a house party in their little greenery, emerging from seed pods in Benel's greenhouse. And from the 50s, this is like a surprising amount of body horror yeah. going on. Kill it! Like it's, Kill it with vines! It's very disturbing, like these yeah. amorphous creatures that are like throbbing. That's it's very just sort bizarre. of like emerge out of the ground. <laughs> right, and they're coming from these pods and there's they're, they're like bubbling constantly. It's very cool. I enjoy the special effects a lot. So, they conclude that the townspeople are being replaced while asleep with the exact physical copies of themselves. Now, Bunnell tries to make long-distance calls to federal authorities, but the phone operator claims that all the the long-distance lines lines are busy, and all all the calls can't be put through. (laughs) I also wonder if... So, throughout this point in the movie, there's a whole big uh, tension thing of of not falling asleep. Because yes. of the connection of the, you know, if the aliens, the aliens take over your mind when you sleep. I wonder if this would later be, and it would late, if this would be the inspiration for Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, the inspiration for Nightmare on Elm Street actually is a very interesting story. It could have been inspired partially by this, but Nightmare on Elm Street was was um, inspired by a series of news reports. That were stating that Southeast Asian immigrants in the 1970s were dying mysteriously in their sleep and attempting not to fall asleep. So we do know the specific cause of the uh, of the inspiration of Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, because yeah, because because one of my first thoughts of when not falling asleep became a plot point was Nightmare on Elm Street. Was, right. Well, I'm sure yeah. that you know, obviously, you know, uh, Wes Craven being a master of his craft was probably very well versed in this film and had probably seen it a couple of times. So that point of inspiration is probably something that was in his head when he made nightmare on Elm street, I think. So yeah. So they make these long distance calls. It goes nowhere. And then Benel and Becky soon realize that all the town's inhabitants have been replaced and are devoid of of humanity and they should kill it with fire. (laughs) Yes. Jack and Teddy drive off to seek help. And they hide at Benel's office for the next night, vowing to stay awake. Oh yeah, and the, yeah, and the, yeah. The they get they get locked in the closet, and yes. which is where I wrote in my notes, trapped in the closet. Oh God, <laughs> I'm sorry. Talking about people that make us uncomfortable. Oh now. no, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. So, the next morning, Benel and Becky went watch from their office as truckloads of the giant pods arrive in their town center, and they listen as Nick Gravett, the police chief played by Ralph Dumke, directs the others to take them to the neighboring towns to be planted and used to replace the population. And I find this, all this movie is very creepy to me. 
Um, and once we get into this scene, this is a very important scene. Um, Kaufman and Belichick, both of whom are now pod people, arrive at Benel's office and they attempt to basically convince them to become one of them. They reveal that an extraterrestrial life form is responsible for the invasion and the pods, capable of replicating any life form, traveled through space and landed in a field. And after their takeover, Kaufman explains humanity will lose all emotions and sense of individuality, creating a simplistic stress-free, superior yeah, world. basically because the pods want to create this entirely conformist society. And I know especially right. because of the time period, a lot of people have interpreted this as, you know, a metaphor for the Red Scare and, you know, the, you know, the fears of communism spreading in America. Right. But I also feel like, intentionally or not, I feel like this is in many ways a commentary on conformism in 1950s America. Yeah, because it is because, you know, I don't know if if any of y'all are aware of this, but 1950s America, the squeaky clean pop culture <laughs> image of 1950s America was all a, fa a, a facade. And as you whole... would know, if you watched any movie by David Lynch. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but the, the like the whole thing is an act and it was it was America and American society and the American government trying to force a squeaky clean image after the war because people didn't want, you know, people didn't want to think about the war anymore. So also they, they wanted to not be the communists and they wanted to not be communism. So they wanted to make it seem like everything about capitalism and everything about America was perfect. So if you didn't think that you were in the wrong and you had to conform to this specific nuclear family, this very specific image and idea and you know, just completely play to the role and not, you know, and often not yeah. individualize in any way, which is remarkably similar to the society that the pod aliens want to create here. So yeah. I, I don't know if this was an intentional commentary or not, but it is an interesting angle given the time period that this came out in. The creators of the film have always stated that they did not intend any political subtext in the movie. And I actually kind of believe them, but that doesn't mean that the political subtext readings are invalid. They grew up and they were living at a time period during the Red Scare, where McCarthy, not the actor McCarthy in this movie, but the senator McCarthy... Yeah, Joseph McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy was collating these lists of supposed communists and then outing them to the public ruining people's lives it was the height of the red scare it was the real cancel culture kids yeah exactly yeah. um and with this there was the simultaneous fears of one being outed as a communist and two of a secret communist invasion coming into the united states so the way that this film has traditionally politically been analyzed has been through one of those two modes where either the film is about McCarthyism and how bad it is and how they want everyone to be good Americans that don't have individual thoughts or two that the movie is a metaphor for the fears of communist invasion. But I think the way that the movie is set up, the authorial intent of the film is a bit more clear in that the movie, I think, from the director and writer's perspective, is a movie about the loss of humanity in the modern world. 
because if you notice, there are several scenes pre pre them having that conversation where they talk about the idea that humanity has lost its way as we grow up, that we become callous yeah. and cruel to other people. Basically, we become essentially machine men, kind of interchangeable. They, we could even become pod people that go about our days in the same routine, routines every day with no differentiation. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was the point they were trying to make. Yeah. But and that I, doesn't make the other readings in Yeah, mind. I think politically speaking... I feel like that lines up more with a critique against McCarthyism and a, re- a critique against 1950s American conformism than right. it does a critique against communism and of the and you know of well, the fears about the sense red scare at the time with critique of communism that the communists wanted us all to be the same you know yeah which it, and... what and that yeah that was a that was a running theme but also you know mm-hmm. when you look at the realities that's right. not true. <laughs> like, and it's interesting that a B-horror film from the 50s has this much debate to this day about what it means. And that kind of shows how impactful it was, not only when it came out, but to this day, that people still talk about the it is a very, and the meaning. It is a, yeah, it is an undeniably influential film. Yes, and this also kickstarted the trend in all of the remakes, where the remakes are specifically about things. Like, the 70s film is about the relationship between men and women and a fear of psychiatry. And the 1990s one is about fear of the Gulf War, if I remember correctly. Oh, uh, yeah. okay. And the 2000s film, The Invasion, is a criticism of the Iraq War. Oh. So, So again, now we need to... So, I can't wait for the 2020s version where it's about a... Trump. It's about Trump, yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. So, yeah. Uh, I, I love this movie, and I'm going to talk about why at the end, but I, I love this movie because of how meaningful it is and how, how much it has to say. So after scuffling with and knocking out the aliens by basically they, they sneak up behind them and inject them with some stuff, but now and Becky escape from the office, and outside they, they try and be emotionless pod people, but Becky screams when she sees a dog almost get hit by a car. And then they start getting chased, and a town alarm is sounded, and the couple flee on foot, pursued by a mob of pod people. Exhausted, they manage to find an escape in an abandoned mine outside of town, and they hide underneath some of the floorboards, struggling to stay awake so their bodies won't be taken over. Later, they hear music, and Vanel stupidly doesn't understand that this is obviously a, a trick, yeah. a trap. <laughs> and uh, Becky briefly invest. He leaves Becky briefly to investigate. And over a hill, he sees the large greenhouse farm with hundreds of giant seed pods being loaded onto trucks. Benel returns to tell Becky, and upon kissing her, realizes to his horror that she oh, fell asleep and is now yeah. one of oh, them. Oh no, Becky's been replaced! And there's this amazing uh, shot, his reaction, where it's like from below, and it's this stark image of him just in horror with mud all over his face. It's so good. I love this movie. So Becky sounds the alarm, and Benel runs away. He's again chased by the mob and eventually finds himself on a crowded highway. And then they see him doing this, and they're like, hmm, should we go after him? And he's like, nah, nobody's going to believe him. Nobody's going to believe him. And then, of course, that leads to the now iconic scene where he's trying to warn everybody, and he sees all the pods. They're, the they're here already! You're, You're next! next. You're, You're next. next! 
And this move, this scene never fails to give me goosebumps because, you know, it's just such a nightmarish scenario. It feels like the sort of thing that, like, you would have a nightmare about, you know, you're, like, trying frantically to tell people that something is wrong and like, nobody's going to believe something you. Something terrible has happened. You know you need to warn people. But it's also a scenario that's so insane that nobody's going to believe you unless they've seen it with their own eyes. And by the time right. they see it with their own eyes, it's too late to do anything about it. Right. Like, that's a and terrifying concept. Yes. And after this all happens after he sees a transport truck bound for San Francisco and Los Angeles filled with the pods. So he then we, we flash forward back to modern day or, you know, modern day at the beginning of the movie, the present of the story. With Benell finishing his story at the hospital, Dr. Hill and the on-duty doctor step outside the room, the latter expressing his certainty that Benell is psychotic. Just then, a truck driver is wheeled into the hall on a gurney after having been badly injured in an accident. The orderly tells the doctors that the man has been dug out from under a load of giant seed pods coming from Santa Mira. Now finally believing Benell's story, Dr. Hill calls for the police to block the roads in and out of Santa Mira where he, while he alerts the FBI. Now, we remember what happens when you try and alert the FBI. They're not gonna answer. Nobody's answering. Well, it's, the world's gonna fucking it's die. It's kind of left. It's it's. That's how I interpret. It feels scene. like I feel like it's left very vague. But the interpretation I got, especially with Burnell's expression, is that. He was able, is that the idea is that they called him and warn, and were able to actually warn the government this time of what was going on to stop it from spreading. And that's why Burnell is relieved. But here's the thing. I don't like that it's a happy ending. <laughs> it's not a happy ending at all. It's well, completely apocalyptic. Well, here's the thing. He's, the not, interpretation, he's not relieved at the end of the film. He, he looks, looks terrified. I don't know. He looked relieved to me. He did not look relieved at all. He looked absolutely stressed constantly, like, oh, God, this is still going to happen. I feel like he looked relieved. Like He did not look relieved I, at all. I feel like he did. So, yeah, I disagree with you fundamentally on the concept that this is a happy ending, but we could have differing interpretations. So, I feel like this movie is about on par with the 70s film, not only because of the highly politically charged meaning that's gone into it, but also because it's just an incredibly well-made movie, and it was the first film that I saw as a kid where I, I saw a 50s horror film that actually was scary, because usually with 50s B-horror movies, they're cheesy and not scary. I wasn't even scared by Psycho when I was a kid, but this movie scared me, because the psychological horror is potent in this movie, and that's why I feel like even though some parts of it are dated, you know, I feel like this still holds up just as well as the 70s version, especially considering how iconic so many of the moments in the film are. So, yeah, uh, I gave oh. this a 9 out of 10. I, I oh. really love it to death. Yeah. I'd also... And I, I think it's great. So, Chris, okay. what do you think of the movie? All right. First of all, I'd like to say... Um, I, I'm, I'm looking at... Before I get into my thoughts, I'd like to say... To p put, a, put a point um, on our discussion of the ending... Uh, both Siegel and Mainwaring were satisfied with the film a shot. It was originally meant to end with Miles screaming as truckloads of pods pass him by. The studio, wary of a pessimistic conclusion, insisted on adding a prologue and epilogue suggesting a more optimistic outcome to the story, which is thus told mainly in flashback. 
okay, so we should edit those parts out. But I still don't feel like the ending as they did it was optimistic. Well, that's I feel what like the they made it pessimistic. Was. To no, that that was the intention on the producer's part. On the on the intention of the producer's side, which is the film that was made. <laughs> I don't think that is how one should interpret that ending, honestly. But okay. Uh so Chris, what do you think of Invasion of the Body Snatchers? I think it is a very good film. Like, you know, I think the, the characters are all very compelling. The tension is the, the use of tension is masterful. The effects are great. You know, it's it's iconic. The and, effects hold up today. Yeah, honestly. the effects hold up even today. Um, there's a lot of really intriguing political commentary, um, as you mentioned. Um, I do think the 70s version is overall better, mainly because this one feels held back by dated concepts. And I know you'll disagree with me, but the fact that it is a more optimistic ending, I'm not <laughs> as a fan of. Like, I like the, the ending of the 70s version where the oh, guy yeah. just, you know, just screams. Yeah, out I agree. The last that, that ending is just fully apocalyptic, it's, Day of it's, the Dead it's, style. Yeah, ending. it's fully apocalyptic, and it's. I feel like it's far more effective in terms of what the what the themes of what it's going for. Whereas this being like, oh, we actually called the government, so it's totally gonna be fine, you guys. It's like, oh, I don't think they oh, think it's okay. gonna be fine, but okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the movie is great, right, Chris? Yeah, I think it's really, really yeah. good. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, which one do you think is better, Mad Max or Invasion of the Body Snatchers? We have an agreement. I also agree. I think Invasion of the Body Snatchers is better than Mad Max. So what we do at the end of every Rocket Ship Roulette episode is we spin the RNG, and that decides what movie we will be watching next. Now, if it's a prequel, sequel, or remake, we have to watch it via the mandatory viewing rule. And also, we have to pick two movies— and Chris gets one veto each time we for each film. So that means that like we we spin, Chris can decide to veto, and then we spin again, and then we do that again, that process. So Chris, shall I spin the wheel? I think you shall. All right, that brings us to number eighty-seven. Number eighty-seven is signs. Mel Gibson. Oh. oh. Do you want to remember, by the way, that the chance of landing on something that we cannot veto is 26%. Do you want to veto signs? Under under previous circumstances, under other circumstances, Please, I might not. Please, chaos, chaos. I want to do chaos. Uh, yeah, under, under, under other circumstances, I would not pick the chaos route. But given that it's signs, I do choose the chaos route veto. Okay, let's... Generate a new number. So that brings us down to number 33. Number 33 is Xanadu, the Greek goddess disco oh. musical from the 80s. Oh, wow. So, Chris, um. do you want to watch Signs or Xanadu? Which one critic famously wrote is Xanadon't. <laughs> Xanadon't. Oh my god. Uh, it has Olivia Newton John. I'm aware. Um Oh my god. You know what? <laughs> just because I just because it'll present an opportunity to make M Night Shyamalan jokes, let's do signs. Let's fucking right, do signs. Let's fucking go. And I'll be able to really argue with you that no, the aliens make sense because they're a metaphor for grief and you're not supposed to take them literally. They're allergic uh, yeah. to water. <laughs> All right, so shall I spin again? Yes, I think you shall spin again. All right, that leads us to number 69. 
Nice. Nice. <laughs> Number 69 is Candyman. Oh. Hmm. Candyman. 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 Does now, it? Candyman is a fantastic horror film, but I do have to remind you, it has sequels. It has, it has many sequels. Some are good, but some are probably not so good. Yes. Mm. Do you want chaos? I mean, you've already done chaos once, so do you want to do chaos again? Let's do chaos again. Oh, no. Okay, we're spinning it again. That leads us to number 72. Body Bags. This is the anthology horror... It's an anthology horror film with one part directed by John Carpenter and another by Toby Hooper. And Mark Hamill's in it. So, Candyman or Body Bags? Candyman. Alright, so, in three weeks, we will be discussing Signs and Candyman. Candyman! Okay, we we should probably stop saying the word Candyman now. Candyman, 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 Candyman. God damn it! (laughs) Oh my god, my ship is falling apart! Of course it is! It's because you just said Candyman five times! Oh no, it's the oh Candyman! Tony oh Todd! God. Oh god, oh look, it's a manta! Can we get inside the manta? Okay, going in the escape pod, we're going... Oh god, oh god, oh my god, we're inside, we're inside the carriage, we're inside the manta carriage. Oh my god, okay, so what do we do now? What you do is you inject yourself with this juice! This manta juice manta will keep you in hibernation. Oh, oh, what's that? Hello, I am your manta. Why, why do you sound like that, manta? This is how mantas sound. Uh, That's weird. I don't like it. <laughs> well, you'll have to get used to it. This is how I'll sound forever. <sighs> why does he okay. sound like Patrick Star? I do not sound like Patrick Star, Chris, and I can hear you. Now I need to insert my tendrils into your brain, Brian. Uh, okay. Yes, Brian. Now you will know my thoughts. My eternal thoughts. The inner machinations of my mind are an enigma. (laughs) I know everything, Chris. (laughs) I know who killed JFK. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, it was, it was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. JFK killed JFK. Oh, my God. Time travel, Chris. Oh, my God. Anyways, what are we doing next week, Chris? Okay. Oh, my God. I need to I need to calm down from that. Okay. I'm taking a sip of water. All right. So, anyways, next week. Oh, and JFK also killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, my God. Anyways, next week. Spider Man. Spider Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size. Catch thieves just like flies. Look out, because we're going to talk about every Spider Man movie in the lead up to No Way Home. All of the Spider Man movies. All of Spider Man. Spider Man. John Q. Spider Man movies. All yes. of them. The Raimi and, trilogy. And we will we will have the Raimi. grand Toby versus Tom Holland debate. And also and it will and be an intellectual affair. Toby Maguire will, versus will... Toby Maguire versus Tom Holland and also Andrew Garfield is there, I guess. Yes. Um. Uh, we will be debating with Logos, Pathos, and Reason. Aristotle and Socrates be proud. Toby's better. Tom is better. To- to- Toby's hotter. Well, first of all, Toby has a frog face, so he cannot be hotter than Tom Holland.
Holland, objectively, as proven by science. And, and second of all, the only time Tom Holland's ever been hotter than Tobey Maguire is when he performed as Rihanna. You have you have clearly not you are clearly not appreciating Tom Holland's workout routine anywhere near enough. Or that shot of him in the rain from the new trailer. Mm, that's some that's some sexy Tom Holland. Yeah. All right. Anyways, yeah. anyways uh, that's what we're doing next next week. week. So this has been. Hipster and the Nerd Rocket Ship Roulette episode 23. Yes, it has. Woo! Anyways, yeah, that that's what this has been. And you can and we do this. We do Hipster and the Nerd every week and you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and all your major podcast platforms. So please leave us a nice five-star review. Um, on Apple Podcast, uh, subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcast and anywhere else you can subscribe. Um, uh, engage with the polls and the Q&As on Spotify. Spread the word on social media. Share it with all of your friends. And I do mean all of them. Uh, hashtag Hipster and the Nerd. Uh, help us grow the show. We very much appreciate it. Uh, I am Chris Hanna. You can find me at MegaNerd98 on Twitter and on Letterboxd. You can also find my WordPress page, MegaNerd's Musings, that I have some ideas for that I might write in the next, uh, within the next week or so. So you <laughs> might you? be on the lookout for an update on that, finally. Um, <laughs> and you can also find me on the TOH Musical Project Discord server where we're putting together an original musical episode. Of the Owl House. So if that sounds something that's interesting to you. That sounds like something <laughs> that is interesting to you. Then you should join that, that server on Discord. And anyways, Brian, where can they find you? You can find me in the carriage of Amanta. Oh, can I be the third host of, of Rocket Ship Roulette? Um, I mean, we're kind of connected by our brainwaves now. So I guess I can't stop you. <laughs> but uh, could you at least tell me your name first? My name is Zilgi. Okay. So we have Zilgi the Manta. And uh, he'll be showing up eventually, you know, in, in some of the future Rocket Ship episodes. But you can find me on Twitter at Brian Brecker or on Letterboxd at bbreck 2 I'm currently reviewing all of the bottom 250 lowest rated films on Letterbox, which means I have just reviewed Norm of the, the North. North. So if you want some of that fucking good polar bear goodness, if you want that good twerking polar bear goodness, you go to my Letterbox right now. All right. Besides that, uh, you can find me inside your hopes and your dreams, or you could find me stabbing my pod person double in the face with a pitchfork. All right. Anyways, uh, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, seize the... Except for you. Except for you, Michael. Oh, jeez. I'm sorry to any viewers named uh, Michael out there. I, I, okay, I'm, ta I'm talking specifically to Michael Smith. We've had beef. And I'm, I'm gonna throw hands with you, Mike. You okay? know what you now, did. <laughs> you know what you did, Mike. I don't. All right? Back in San Antonio, <laughs> alright, there were three bullets left. You know what you did, Mike. <laughs> I'm not going to say anymore because my lawyers told me I shouldn't. But anyways. <laughs> oh my god.
this has been hipster yeah this has yeah that's what this has been thank you everybody for listening seize the means of applebee's of applebee's and we will see you next time tomorrow in a world gone mad Only law will be a renegade squad of suicidal cops. He's my prisoner, and he's not walking out that door. And the open road will be controlled by gangs of glory roaders. Max is a cop, one of the best. Where does he run to get you? Scoot jockeys? Yeah, no man trash. Mm. Well. I'll add it to my thread collection. He made the news again. Who was he? Just another glory roader, I guess. Toe Cutter is a glory roader, one of the most sadistic. Anything I say. Anything you say. What a wonderful philosophy you have. Take him away. I want my baby. You've not got a sense of humor. Please, don't hurt my baby. You've got a pretty face, though. Both want the other dead. But only one can have his way. Don't want to make Max mad. Because when Max gets mad, he gets evil. American International presents Mad Max, the maximum force of the future. If you don't, if you won't, if you fail to understand, then the same incredible terror that's menacing me will strike at you! years of space unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. It's whatever intelligence or instinct it is that can govern the forming of human flesh and blood out of thin air is fantastically powerful, beyond any comprehension. A cursed, dreadful, malevolent thing was happening to those he loved. This isn't just an ordinary body, is it? I never saw one like it. It looks unused. The sensational star discovery of the view from Poppy's head. And now an undreamed of horror makes her life and love a vortex of fear. Jack! Miles, where do they come from? I don't know. 
Suddenly, while you're asleep, they'll absorb your minds, your memories. I don't want any part of it. You're forgetting something, Miles. What's that? You have no choice. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spreads. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! Get out, human!